we're starting tonight a study of the book of Philippians. Now, what we're going to do tonight is not uh, everybody's favorite thing because we're going to be talking about some introductory material. And some people, it depends on your personality, it depends on who you are. Some people eat this stuff up and they love learning the background and the history and all of these things. And other people can't stand it. And so this is going to be wonderful for some and other people are going to be like, uh, man, I just hate that. But but the good news is we only do one week of introduction, but, we, but I feel it's important uh, that we do understand the background and the setting before we get into the scripture because that helps us understand a lot of different areas of scripture. And when we talk about the, the church in the city of Philippi, because Philippians, as you, I'm sure you are very well aware, that just means the people of the city of Philippi. So this is a letter written to the church in the city of Philippi. And this church was, was really, it was Paul's uh, joy and his crown. And of all the churches that he was involved in, of all the churches that he planted on his missionary journeys, this was the church that gave him the least amount of trouble, uh, really no, no trouble at all in any real sense. And, and it was a church that gave him a great deal of satisfaction. So, so Philippians has a, a wonderful uh, joyful tone to it, a very loving. It's it's the most intimate and uh, of all of the uh, the epistles that he wrote, and and so it's just a letter of joy, and it's brimming, brimming over with expressions of gratitude and love and affection, and and you know Philippians is also a letter that's desperately needed by the modern church because it it provides for us a picture of a church that that takes seriously who she is as partners with Christ in the gospel, a, a church who accepts Jesus as Lord and, and patterns her ministry after him. And we'll get into that in chapter two, where he talks about taking how he took the form of a servant. And so if we're going to pattern our ministry after Jesus, that means that we take the form of a servant. And a church that's always exalting the Lord and always being strengthened by him, a church that's, that's living in hope because they know that that, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And, and a church that's expressing the fruit of the Spirit, a church that's living as witnesses to our, our servant Lord here on earth, and, but also at the same time while we're living on earth, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. That's all in the book of Philippians. And, and, and as far as the city of Philippi goes, the, the Philippi is one of the better known New Testament cities. There's there is, uh, is, there's no city there any longer. Some cities you read in the, in the New Testament, uh, they're still there. Some of them have a variation of the name. Some of them has a, have a completely different name. But Philippi does not exist anymore. But during its day, Philippi was a, a really a very strategic city in ancient times. Phil, Philippi was located about nine miles uh, from the Aegean coast, uh, and nine miles from the, the port of Neapolis. Now, Neapolis is still there. I can't remember. It has a different name. Uh, and if you're, I, I don't have maps or anything for you. I should have made one. I, I didn't think about that. But you, uh, Philippi is, is sort of in northern Greece is where you're thinking. So if you can picture Greece or maybe pull up a, a, a map of Greece on your phone or whatever, if you will look on the east side of Greece, there's a, it's like a big body of water. That's the Aegean Sea. And so uh, uh, near the, the, the northern part of Greece, you'll, Philippi was about nine miles inland from there. And uh, it, it was city, the city itself was situated on, on the Gangites River. And it was a fertile location. 
uh, oh, and, oh, and overlooked a, an inland plain to the east of, of a mountain there, Mount, Mount Pangaeus. And it was surrounded, the city was surrounded by, uh, by the other, on the other three sides by mountains. So it was a very secure uh, region. Now, when we talk about and think about some of the history of Philippi that leads us into this letter, uh, some of this, as I said, some of you are, are like me, you're history buffs, you're, you're geeks, and so you're like, you dig in, you love learning this stuff, and, and others are not that crazy about it. And if you're not crazy about it, uh, we'll be getting into some other things a little bit later. But w one of Philippi's claims to distinction was, was the fact that there were gold mines located in the vicinity. And uh, in the pre-Macedonian and Macedonian era, Philippi's prosperity was, was largely dependent on these neighboring gold mines. And uh, a group of people known as the Thracians, they worked the gold mines near Philippi until around 360 or 359 BC. And that was, that was the moment in time when settlers from the island of Thassos, uh, for those Marvel fans, not Thanos, but Thassos, um, they, they settled in the site and, and, and the area had a lot of springs and, and streams. And so when they settled there, they actually named the, this original settlement, uh, the, they called it the Crenides. And, and that comes from, an, from uh, the Greek word for fountain or spring. And the residents of Crenides asked King Philip II for Macedonian assistance because the Thracian people were were attacking them and there was some Thracian aggression. Now I want you to say, to say this, if you don't know who King Philip II is from Macedonia, you'll know who his son is, I guarantee it. Because his son is Alexander the Great. So that kind of sets the stage uh, of during this time of, of history. And, and when they asked for help from Philip, uh, he, he helped them, but he actually, he seized the site and, and he seized all the neighbor, neighboring gold mines in, in, the, in the 350s BC. And when he did that, then he enlarged this city. Uh, and the, the settlement it was really a settlement at that point in time. He enlarged the settlement. He fortified the town by building a city wall and he drained the adjacent swamps. And then, and then to uh, occupy it, he brought in Macedonians to guard the gold deposits. And then to top it all off, he renamed the settlement in honor of himself. His name was Philip and the city was Philippi. And that's where it got its name. It's from, from the King Philip when he took it over. And he treated it as, as a uh, quote unquote free city. And he uh, garnered a thousand talents annually, talents of gold annually from its mines. And it was this wealth that really enabled Philip to enlarge his army and to support his conquest. Well, a little bit later on down the road, in the history of Philippi, uh, the, the Romans defeated the, the Persians in 168 BC. And at that moment in time, it was in that area. And that's when Philippi became part of the Roman Empire. And, and it belonged to oh, the first of, of the four regions of Macedonia. I'm not going to get into the geography, all of all that, because I know I would lose everybody then. And then a little bit later on, as time wore on, how many of you remember the, the name Mark Antony? Uh, and, and forces that were loyal to Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius. And, uh, and that was at the Battle of Philippi in, in 42 BC. And that battle, actually it was two distinct battles. It was fought just to the west of the city. And, and that's a significant battle because that was a major turning point in the transition 
from a Roman Republic to the establishment of an empire. That was a moment where the emperor began to really, really uh, solidify his grip on power and the Republic, the Senate of Rome began to lose its power. Um, it's maybe a little bit of a uh, uh, warning for modern day republics, which we are one in America as to you know what can happen if you're not diligent and not, don't pay attention to what's happening. But um, as a result of that victory, Antony then uh, uh, subsequently uh, enlarged the city again and he reinforced all the city walls and then he filled it with Roman soldiers and made it a, a Roman colony and that gave it the highest privilege obtain, obtainable by a provincial municipality. Now I want to talk for a minute about Roman colonies because these were amazing institutions. They were, they were not colonies. See, we think of the term colony in the sense of, of you know, sort of some sort of outpost of civilization in unexplored parts of the world. And so, you know, we're going to go out there and create a colony out there and, and spread civilization. But that's not what this idea was. Roman colonies, in, in the early days of the Roman Empire, Roman colonies, uh, that idea and the concept and the usage of colonies actually had begun, begun by having those places had military significance. And so it was the custom of Rome to send out parties of veteran soldiers along with their wives and all their, their family. And these soldiers were men who had served their time and had been granted citizenship in Rome. And they sent these, these men and their families to settle in these strategic centers, which really were strategic road centers. And these colonies then were the focal points of the very famous and well-known great Roman road system. And they were all engineered. And the reason they were there and the reason those, these colonies were strategic militarily was because these roads were made in such a way and engineered in such a way so that reinforcements could speedily be sent from one colony to another. Because, you know, here, here's the thing, you know, if you're going to run an empire in today's world, you have all kinds of different, different technology available to you. That you, you can you know, launch a, a, you know, an airstrike and, and within hours be hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away. And you couldn't do that then. So the way that the Roman Empire had to support itself and to be able to, and, and, and to uh, police its empire, it had to have soldiers everywhere and they had to have a system whereby if there's an uprising in one area, they could move soldiers from areas where it's peaceful to those areas quickly. And that was the whole reason really why the Roman road system was built in the first place. It was used also for trade and that sort of thing, but that wasn't really the, the real purpose behind it. But these, these colonies then were, were founded to, to keep the peace and to command uh, the, these strategic centers in Rome's far-flung empire. And now in later days in the, in the Roman Empire, the title of colony was given by the government of Rome to any city uh, which it wished to honor for faithful service. But early on, it had to do with military significance. Um, wherever they were, these colonies were like little fragments of Rome. And, and, and their pride in the Roman, their Roman citizenship was the dominating characteristic for them. Uh, which, by the way, being a colony also meant that they were free from taxes. So that's a big bonus, right? I mean, you're like, make me a colony. You know, I'll take that right now. 
But, uh, but they, they were just like little fragments of Rome. They, the, they spoke the language of Rome. The Roman dress was worn. Roman customs were observed. The magistrates in the cities all had Roman titles and they carried out the very same ceremonies as, that were carried out in Rome itself. And, and they were stubbornly and, and alt, unalterably Roman. And these Roman citizens, no matter where they were in the world in these colonies, they would never have dreamt of becoming, becoming assimilated to the people amidst whom they were, uh, they were living. That, that thought would never cross their mind because they saw themselves as Roman citizens, as above them, as better than them. So they, they're like, I, we don't want to live like you. We're going we're gonna to live like Roman citizens. That's what we do. And because Philippi was a Roman colony, its residents often emphasized their Roman loyalties and their Roman privileges. And the book of Philippians, it's interesting with this understanding. It helps us understand some things because it, 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 this letter is the only letter of Paul's that he wrote where he uses the language of civil or political identity. And I think it may be significant here. I mean, he may have used it in this, in this particular setting because of an incident that happened with the, the rulers of the city. But we'll get to that in a minute. But in Philippians 1.27, Paul tells the recipients of the letter to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's sort of the same concept that, that Roman citizens would say, we're going to live worthy of Roman citizenship. But in, in, in verse 20 of chapter 3, he actually reminds them, he says that your citizenship is in heaven. This is the only real place that, he's ever, that he uses this particular type of language. In, in essence, you know what he's saying? To them, and, and they'll understand this very clearly, he's saying, you are a colony of heaven. That's the, that's the idea by using this language And when he wrote to the Philippian church. And they would know exactly, in a moment, exactly what that meant. They would, without hesitation, they would get it because just as the Roman colonists never forgot in any environment that, that, that he was a Roman, and they didn't assimilate to the to the culture around them because we're Roman. In the same way, they must never forget in any society, in any setting, in any culture that we are Christian. And that's a really powerful concept that he, that he gets across just with his idea of citizenship to these uh, believers in Philippi because he's saying to them, listen, you're proud of your Roman citizenship and you would not live up beneath the status of a Roman citizen. But you need to understand you're really a citizen of heaven and you've got to remember no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what's around you, you've got to remember you're a citizen of heaven and live according to that status. So that was a significant thing. Now, when we talk about the gospel in Philippi and the church in Philippi, uh, it, it, it was on Paul's second missionary journey somewhere around the year of A.D. 52, when Paul first came to Philippi. And if you remember the story, it's a really fascinating story because originally Paul had planned to go, uh, go east and to go into Asia to, to take the gospel. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And as I said before, we did a study in the book of Acts and the audio uh, uh, recording of that is on our website at restorationlifechurch.tv if you want to go through those. But, uh, but originally Paul, when he was on this journey... His plan was to go east, to go into Asia with the gospel. But the, but the Bible says 
that the, that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going to Bithynia, to go, prevented them from going that direction. Now, we don't know what the Holy Spirit did, how he stopped them. All we know is the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going that way. So instead, they went to a city called Troas. And it was in Troas that Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. And remember, Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. So he, Paul has a vision, a, a dream of a man in Macedonia. And the man is saying to them, come and help us. Well, you know, Paul and his companions, you know, I think if I have that kind of a vision or dream, it's pretty not, not that hard to figure it out. And it really wasn't hard for them to figure it out. And they concluded that God had called him to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. So Paul set sail from Troas, which was in Asia Minor. And then he landed in Neapolis in Europe and then made his way to Philippi. And that's where a Christian church was born in the city of Philippi. It was the first church in Europe. It's a significant moment. And it began with the conversion of a woman named Lydia. We'll talk about her a little bit in a moment. But, it, but after the church, after he preached the gospel to Lydia and her group of, uh, of God-fearing believers there by the river, and you can read about it, they were, they were worshiping up next to a river outside the city, which was common if they didn't have a synagogue. Which The fact that they didn't have a synagogue tells us that there weren't very many Jewish men because I believe the number was you had to have 12 men 12 Jewish men in a city to be able to form a synagogue. So that tells us that as she was a God-fearing woman and she was following the ways of, of, the, uh, of the people of Israel the, the, uh, and, and worshiping the God of Israel, but there wasn't, there wasn't a synagogue for her to go to. So they were meeting outside the city. And that's where they, they, Paul met them and preached the gospel. And she and her household and several other people got saved. But following that, some very dramatic events took place. And, and if you remember, this is the place where, where Paul, in, in the name and the authority and the power that's in the name of Jesus, he freed a, a slave girl from a, from a demonic spirit, which, uh, which had, uh, uh, that spirit had made her a source of gain, a source of income for, her, for the owners of her as a slave. And she was telling fortunes by this demonic spirit. And, and as a result of this, they were very angry because they were going to lose their income, the money that was coming in off this. So they went and complained to the city leaders and Paul and Silas uh, were arrested and they were flogged and they were imprisoned. And, and you, you know the story how they were in prison. And then at midnight, they began to sing praises in the jail in the, in the city of Philippi. And then an earthquake came and everything, all the doors came open and their chains fell off. And the jailer was about to kill himself because he thought that all the prisoners had, had escaped. And and it would have been such a horrible disgrace. He'd have been killed anyway. So he's about to kill himself in disgrace. And Paul says, stop, we're all here. Nobody has left. Nobody has escaped. And then the man fell on his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul explains the gospel. And, and in the middle of that setting, in that horrible circumstance with being beaten and thrown into prison and put into stocks, you know, in that, in that dungeon, and, and in, in the, in as, as bad as all of that was, the Holy Spirit was still at work and was going to bring something good out of that. 
you know, that's, it makes me think of Romans 8, 28 again, where it says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and here in the middle of this, with everything bad that's going on, Paul and Silas understood God is still in control and God is at work doing something so we can begin to praise him in the middle of the, of the dungeon, in the middle of the night, because I don't know what's going to happen, but I know God's going to do something. And what did he do? He took that situation and, and, and turned it into another display of the Holy Spirit's power. And the jailer and his entire household were saved and baptized that night. Now, the story of Paul's visit to Philippi centers around three people. First of all, and we've mentioned all of them. First of all is Lydia, seller of purple. Second is the demon-possessed slave girl who was used by her masters to tell fortunes. And the third is obviously the Philippian jailer. And that's significant because in those three people, this, we find an extraordinary cross-section of ancient life. Because first of all, these, all three of these people were of different nationalities. Lydia was from Thyatira, which was in Asia Minor. So she was Asian in descent. And the slave girl, we're, we're told, is a native Greek. And then the jailer was a Roman citizen. And so, so we have these different nations coming to Christ right there in that, nation, in that chapter. But not only were these three of different nationalities, they also came from very different echelons of society. Because Lydia, as a dealer of purple, now, see, we, don't, we hear a dealer in purple. You know, we don't understand. What in the world is that? What do you mean dealing in purple? Well, it was, happened to be, and I'm not going to get into the details of what it was, but I will tell you this much, that it was one of the costliest substances in the entire ancient world. And she dealt with this. And, and, and as a result, we know, I mean, we can be certain she was a wealthy woman. In fact, the Bible says that when the church was founded, the church met in her house. So she had a significant enough home that the church could meet there. So she's a, she's a wealthy woman. I mean, the, the equivalent of a, like a merchant princess. Then you have the girl who was a slave. And as a slave, that, therefore, that meant that in the eyes of the Roman law, she was not a person at all, but she was nothing more than a living tool. And then you have the jailer who was a Roman citizen, a member of the, the sturdy Roman middle class from which the, the, the civil service was drawn. So in these three people, you have the top, the bottom, and the, and the middle of society are all represented. And the, and the story of the birth of the church at Philippi shows the all-embracing grace which Jesus brought to men, th that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you may be, it doesn't matter how important you think you are or how unimportant other people think you are, it doesn't matter what your social status may be, none of those things matter, it doesn't matter if you were born in America or Israel or Iraq or any nation in the world, none of that matters because we all need the salvation that Jesus Jesus bought with his own blood. And, the, and the, the, the chapter, that chapter in Acts chapter 16, I believe it is, that tells the story of the birth of the church of Philippi is, is sort of a microcosm of the gospel exploding across all classes in every society, in every culture, in every nation. Well, Paul, after all that, he had to leave Philippi after a storm of persecution, after this illegal imprisonment, and he, he left on the appeal of the city fathers 
who were alarmed by the discovery that, that they had flogged a Roman citizen without a trial, which I find ironic, you know, that these people in this Roman colony who took such great pride in their Roman citizenship had just illegally and unjustly beaten and imprisoned a fellow Roman citizen. So this is a big deal. I don't think we totally fully understand what a big deal this was because the, the, the thought that this incident would get reported to the higher ups back in Rome, that acts absolutely terrified them. This would be disaster for them. They may face death themselves. And so they just, they just sent word and begged him, just, just leave, just go out of town. Uh, and, well, actually, they told him to leave town before they found out he was a Roman citizen. And that's when Paul said to the jailer, he said, uh, they want me just to leave town quietly after beating and imprisoning a Roman citizen. And it says when they found out that he was a Roman citizen, that's when they sort of freaked out. And, and Paul insisted that these city leaders who were responsible for this ill treatment, that they would come and appear before him and apologize for what they'd done, but they, he insisted that they escort him out of the city. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, be easy to look at and say, well, that was sort of petty. But, but that's not why he was doing it. I, I think the reason he was doing that is because he understood everywhere he'd been, that there was a propensity for persecution to break out against the church. And I think in Paul's mind, he was thinking, if I, they escort me out, and the Bible says that he stopped at Lydia's house on the way and greeted her and the other believers before they left town, and he has these city leaders with him. I think it was a subtle way of saying, hey, hands off these people, or I'm going to tell what you did. So I think it was, it was, a, it was a, it meant, it was some sort of effort to uh, provide at least some level of protection for this fledgling church in the city of Philippi. Now, unfortunately, that persecution uh, was inherited by the, by the Philippian church anyway, and because he tells them in, in Philippians that they have uh, shared in his bonds and in the defense of the gospel, and he tells them not to fear their adversaries for they're going through what he himself has gone through and what he is enduring even now in Rome when he writes this. So when we t let's, let's move on. Let's talk about the authorship. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the authorship because uh, this is one of the few epistles uh, in, in few, few books in the New Testament that there's really no controversy, that there's no questions. Because a lot of the other epistles, people, you know, scholars will say, well, I think it was Paul, but it really could have been this person. But this one is one where there's really pretty much universal agreement that Paul wrote this. It's, a, as I said, it's, it's the most personal of Paul's letters, and it bears the mark of authenticity in almost every sentence. And, and in sharing autobi autobiographical information by describing his present situation, by naming his friends and his co-workers who were with him and, and by referring to the gifts sent to him from Philippi to when he was in Thessalonica and, and elsewhere. Whoever wrote this then draws a picture of himself and this picture coincides perfectly with all, all that we know of Paul uh, from other sources. So there's really no question. We know this was from Paul. Now, now when did he write it? Well, Philippians is one of what we call the prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They were all written while, while Paul was in prison. 
That's why we get the prison epistles. And from the epistle itself, we'll, we'll read in coming weeks, we'll, we'll learn that Paul was a prisoner when he wrote Philippians. And, and most scholars believe that the letter came out of Paul's imprisonment with, in Rome. I believe that's where it was. There's some that say, well, you know, it may have been when he was in prison in Caesarea before, a uh, li little bit later on, before, before he was uh, then uh, shipped to Rome, before the shipwreck and all that kind of stuff. Or some say it was some imprisonment in Ephesus that's not really recorded in Scripture. But, but I think for several reasons, I think it makes the most sense that it was in Rome. Number one, because he refers to the Praetorian Guard, and, those, and they were headquartered in Rome. He, he, he offers a greeting from the saints among the imperial slaves. That, that's included, and that would have been in Rome. Uh, he's facing the possibility of execution. That's the situation of his Roman imprisonment. And, and, the, and then finally, as it was in Colossians and Philemon, uh, which both we know came from Rome, Timothy is included in this, in this situation. So, so it, 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 all evidence seems to point that he wrote it when he was in prison in Rome. And because we know that Paul was in prison in Rome from around A.D. 61 to A.D. 63, then we know that's the time frame in which this was written. So why did he write it? Why did he write it? This is important because if we understand why someone writes something, that helps us understand what they wrote. Well, first of all, first and foremost, very simply, he wrote it because of love. He loved this church. He loved the Philippians deeply. He had a special relationship with the saints at Philippi. They had, there, there had grown up between Paul and the Philippian church a, a bond of friendship and love that was closer than, than that which existed between him and any other church. And so the most important reason for writing was simply he wanted to write. He loved them. He wanted to write to them. Another reason was because of gratitude. You know, Paul was sending this letter to thank the Philippians for what he termed as another gift. And that's significant because Paul uh, had never taken help from, from any man or any church. You know, he talks about in, in, in how in Corinth he tells them, you know, I made sure I worked with my own two hands to support myself, that I never received anything from you. But you know what? It was from the Philippians alone that he, that he agreed to accept the gift. And soon after he left uh, the, the Philippi and, and he went from there after being beaten in prison and, you know, escorted out of town. He, from there he moved on to Thessalonica. And when he moved to Thessalonica, guess what? The, the church at Philippi sent him another gift, sent him a gift. And, and then when he moved on from, from there and, and later he arrived in Corinth by way of Athens. And you can read the whole journey there. They alone in Philippi, the believers in Philippi again remembered him with their gifts. And now, apparently, as he says, they had sent him a third gift. And Paul was wanting to write to thank them for their gift. Uh, another reason he was writing was because he wanted to send a message to them regarding a man named Epaphroditus. Because not only had they sent a monetary gift, but when they sent that gift, they sent it uh, by a man named Aphroditus and he came to deliver the gift, but he also had been sent with a specific mission. And that mission was that he was to be a personal servant to Paul. Well, while he was there serving Paul and serving the gospel and serving Christ in Rome, Epaphroditus became very, very ill. 
so ill that it was, it was nearly to the point of death. And as a result, he was very homesick. Not just because he wanted to go home, but because he knew that the people at home had heard that he was sick and he knew that they were worried about him and he wanted to go to them and comfort them and say, listen, I'm going to be okay. So Paul, because of all this going on, Paul sent Epaphroditus home, uh, but he was concerned that some of the people in Philippi might think Epaphroditus was a quitter. They might, they might judge him, might look down on him. So to prevent any misunderstanding, he included in this letter this tremendous testimonial, which basically he says, receive him with all gladness because for the work of Christ, he, he came close to death. He nearly died serving Jesus. He gives him this testimonial. Another reason he wrote was to provide encouragement. Uh, the, the occasion of Epaphroditus' return to Philippi gave Paul the opportunity to encourage the Philippians in the trials through which they were going. And, 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 and how did he encourage them? This is, this is where the real theme, the key word for Philippians is rejoice or joy. You know, it's, it's the high, that concept of joy. And because that concept of rejoicing or joy, it, it shows up 16 times in four chapters. And the pages just radiate uh, this positive message of joy culminating in the, in the exhortation in, in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now that's a, that's a big deal because he's writing to them in the midst of their suffering, but he's also writing from his place of suffering. He's writing from, from prison himself. So this is, this is a, a significant thing. Oh, by the way, I, I, need to, I need to be clear on that. When Paul was in prison in Rome, it was not like he was in a dungeon. So he was suffering in the sense that he was in prison, but he was living in a house that he had to pay for the rent for the house himself, even though he was a prisoner. And the guards were, were there uh, manning and guarding him 24 hours a day, so he couldn't go anywhere. So it wasn't... It wasn't Suffering in the sense of, you know, like he was in the, Phil the Philippian jail, but he was still suffering in the sense that he was being persecuted. And, and so it, as a result of, of this, you know, he's just sending this, this, this message of joy. But it's really about his example of joy. It's, it's his example of contentment that, that served as encouragement to the believers in Philippi. Because, listen, Paul had faced excruciating poverty at times in his life. He had walked and lived in abundant wealth at times in his life, and he had lived in everything in between. And he wrote this joyful letter from prison. And he says to them, listen, whether it's in abundance or poverty, I can do all things. That's the context there. And Paul had learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Finding, finding real joy as he focused on all of his attention and all of his energy on knowing Christ and obeying him. The, the last reason I think he's, that he wrote this has to do with unity. And this is a very common sort of a ubiquitous theme through all of Paul's writing because, you know, Jesus himself in John, in John 17, you know, we, we talk about the Lord's Prayer and we think about the prayer that, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? That's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer because that was a prayer that he was teaching them to pray. 
If you want to know what the Lord's Prayer is, go to John chapter 17 and read it because that is a chapter where before his crucifixion and before his resurrection, before he went through all of the suffering, that Jesus, in a very long chapter, a very long prayer, prays for his disciples. And he prays for believers that are yet to come, including you and me. And one of the most important things, one of the things he prayed for, he said, Father, make them one. So Jesus himself knew that the greatest threat for the mission of the church and for the goal of what he was trying to accomplish was going to be the, the, the destruction of the unity of the body of believers. So Jesus himself set this as a very high priority because he, he understood, and we all understand, that without unity, we will never be successful in fulfilling our calling. We'll never be successful in living out the mission without unity in the body of Christ because a house divided against itself will always fail. It will always fall. And so through Epaphroditus, Paul, you know, he, Epaphroditus, he came, you know, he, he gave him the gift, but you know, you know, he also, Paul said, okay, tell me, tell me, Epaphroditus, how are things going? How, how are things going? Is the church well? Is it healthy? I, I, I know they're suffering persecution, but, but what's going on? And so Epaphroditus had told him about a, a tendency to a party spirit. Now, I don't mean party as in, you know, woohoo party. I mean talking about uh, division of two parties. And he told them about some personal antagonism between two specific women converts. Uh, and, and that these things were threatening the peace and the unity of the congregation. And, and as a result of that, you know what Paul does? He gives us the most descriptive passage in all of Scripture of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, as a servant. And he calls for us to have the same mind as Christ. Then, then I, I said that was the last one. There's actually one more. The, the, the final reason he wrote was because he wanted to warn them to guard against false teachers. As, as ubiquitous as, as the threat to unity was, so were false teachers in the early church. Uh, many times they were what was called Judaizers or, or teachers that would come in and say, okay, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you still have to live according to the covenant. You still got to get, you know, circumcised if you're a male. You still have to do all these things. And they were trying to make people live under the Jewish covenant rather than live under the grace that Jesus offered them. So, and that, those weren't the only false teachers, by the way. Those were just probably the most common. But Paul, Paul knew that there were false teachers out there that were trying to dissuade the Philippians from the true path of the gospel. And he urged them, he said, beware, be on your guard, pay attention to what's being said. You know the gospel, stick to the gospel, even though they may be really convincing and they may speak with, with, with really slick words. They may be a better communicator than I'll ever be. But he says, you know the gospel, stick to the gospel of grace and rejoice only in Jesus. Have no confidence in the flesh. It's not about what you can do. It's not about you being circumcised. It's not about you keeping the law. It's about the grace of Jesus. And that was the warning that he wanted to give. And I want to close by giving you two observations about Philippians. Uh, one of them actually sort of echoes a little bit of what we talked about last week in the closing chapter of Romans. And that is, I wanted to point out again, how women played a, a really important role in the leadership of the church at Philippi. Because, you know, there, there are people out there that criticize Paul 
and they accuse him of being down on women, you know, that he was anti-woman, all this kind of stuff, but it's just, it's just not true. Uh, and we know from this chapter, from Philippians, or Acts chapter 16, in the story of the church of Philippi, we know that Lydia was the very first convert there, and that the church began in her house. That's where they met. And we're told about Euodia and Syntyche, uh, which, which we'll get into them later, but these were the two that had this disagreement and they were probably leaders in the church because otherwise their disagreement with each other would not have been so important to Paul. It wouldn't have been so polarizing. You wouldn't have had as many people going one side or the other. But the gospel message of the worth and the dignity of women was, was not missed or downplayed by Paul. In fact, I'm not going to, this has nothing to do with Philippians, but you should look sometime and do a study in the, in the difference the different way that Jesus treated woman, women as opposed to the way their culture treated women. He treated them with love and dignity and respect, whereas the culture of that day said women are, I mean, they, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. They said they're just, you know, they're just too low. And Jesus said that's not who they are. They're, they're my, they're, I love them. And so that, that's a side note there. The second thing I want to bring, to point, bring out before we close is I want, I want, I want us to know, you know, the, the, the feeling of solidarity between the church of, of Philippi and, and, the, and the whole Christian mission. That's a, that's a really inspiring pattern for the church in every age. Because they were, they were all in. They were all in on this. They, they gave sacrificially. You know, the, the, the Macedonian converts to Christianity, as a class, they were, they were very, very poor. You, we know that from 2 Corinthians 8.1. But we also know that their, that their liberality, their generosity was conspicuous. And Paul says that they gave even beyond their ability. You know, that's amazing to me. That's a grace-filled giving because how do you do something beyond your ability? I don't care what it is, you know. Uh, if I'm trying to do the long jump, I have my ability and I can jump a certain distance. And Paul says, you know, to them, they, they had a certain ability to give. You, they could give this much. This is what they have to give. And Paul said they gave beyond their ability. They gave sacrificially because they wanted to see the borders of the kingdom of God enlarged. They, they, they sent gifts to Paul in different places where he was serving, where he was, where he was preaching the gospel, because they wanted to be tied in with what God was doing all over the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it seems to me, and, and you can disagree with me, but it just seems to me that, that in many, many ways, and to a very large extent, that we in modern, the modern church, we have we have, in a, to a large extent, we have lost the whole concept of sacrificial giving. You know what we do? We, we give if it's convenient. We give if we have plenty. We give if we pay our bills and there is some money left over. Well, I, I've got news for you. God has never been satisfied with our leftovers. That's why the tithe is the first 10% right, right off the top to him. To say, God, you are first. You're not getting my leftovers. And, and even beyond that, to give sacrificially, we, ha we have to learn how to listen to God. And then when he says, 
you know, whether it's a, a person in need or a missionary that's in a service or whatever it might be, where we listen to his voice and we just give what he says to give. And we trust him to take care of our needs. We could go probably, uh, just about everybody here has a story of a time when they gave in obedience to God and then he supplied in a supernatural way uh, that they, had, they, they never saw coming, but they gave out of, their, out of their need and then God supplied their need. We trust him. But this church understood their purpose for existence as a church was to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now let me ask you this question. As a church, what is our purpose? And I know some of you say to glorify God. Okay, yes. Well, that's our, all of our purpose individually. But as a church, what is our purpose? Why are we here? What was the mission Jesus gave us? What's that? Spread the gospel. Specifically, to make disciples of all people from every nation and every tribe. And, and, and if that's our business, if that's the business we're in, if, that's the, if the business of the church is to reach the lost and to make disciples of all men, then I think the only question, that the, or maybe not the only question, but certainly one of the most important questions that we have to ask, how's business? How's business? And when I talk about the church, remember this. I'm not just talking about organizations because who is the church? The church is not an organization. The church is the people of God. So it's not just, well, is our church doing something? That's a big part of it. That's an important part of the question. But even more important for us is the question, if I am part of the church and this is my business, how's business? Am I doing anything? Am I giving to missions? Am I, am I telling people in my neighborhood about Jesus? Am I sharing my faith with those that are, that are, that I work with whom I work with? Uh, am I, you know, am, am I living this out? You know, am I doing anything to, to disciple people? And listen, I understand this. Not everybody has the same level. You know, you know, I've known people that just were, that had the gift of evangelism and they can, they can just go sit down in a restaurant and, and within 15 seconds, they're talking with them about their relationship with Christ and leading them and praying and they're all crying. And that's not everybody. Not everybody can do that but, uh, because we're all different and we're all gifted differently. And we all, you know, we have different uh, levels of comfort when it comes to talking with people. But, but at the same time, you know, the quietest person among us can disciple somebody. You know, uh, and I know she's probably going to hate that I even use her name, but Miss Nett, she's here, you know, and, and uh, she's, she is, she's not a forward person. She, she's, she wants to be behind the scenes. She's quiet. That's the way God has wired her. But you know what? I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea how many little ones she has poured discipleship into. She's doing what she can to disciple to make disciples. So whether it's teaching a children's class or leading a small group or teaching in church or leading worship or whether it's, you know, uh, doing something at your, at your workplace and you're serving people around you in the name of Christ, whatever it is. If we have that in our, our mind, have, have that as our focus to say, you know what, I'm here 
to direct the attention to Jesus so people will see the grace that he offers, the forgiveness that he offers. Then when we ask the question, how's business? The answer is, I'm about my father's business. I'm going to do my father's business. I'm going to make disciples. Next week, we'll get into Romans, or not Romans. No, we're, we're done with Romans. Don't panic. We're, we're going to get into Philippians chapter 1. We'll get into the actual scripture next week. And, and so for those that, uh, that don't enjoy the background and the history, uh, your time of torture has come to an end. And those that love it, then I'm glad you enjoyed it. But, uh, but next week, we'll get into the actual scripture. We'll begin with, with Philippians chapter 1, and I know it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great study. I I'm, I'm feel confident of that because God's word is great. And so I know it's going to be great. But why don't you bow your head and let's just pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the, 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 the pattern, the example of the church of, of Philippi and their passion to do what they can, whether it's giving gifts or sending someone to serve or, or loving the people around them, whatever it was, God, that they were committed to the mission of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be as committed as they were, that we'll be willing to do whatever needs to be done to, to glorify your name and to, and to lead people to you, Jesus. And I pray you would give us wisdom and courage. Lord, not every one of us is going to go out and witness to somebody on the street. That's, that's obvious, Lord God, but Every one of us can do something. Every one of us can touch some life. So, Lord, give us wisdom and insight as to how to do that. And then anoint us as we begin to move forward in, in your, for your glory in your kingdom. And we give you thanks for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.